Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. I was saying lots of stupid things when I was 16. I said corn was good when I was 16, and I hold to that. But oh, you mean the K-O-R-N? Oh, I mean the band. Yeah, but, but that, that, that bullet video is awesome. It's really good. Hello, and welcome to The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am Ezra Klein, here with Jane Coaston. Jane, how's it going? It's it's going okay. How are you doing? I'm good. We You you do not sound as excited as I thought you were going to sound. I'm, I'm pretty jazzed, but also this is like attempting to explain an argument going on at a high school you don't attend to a lot of people. But I need to, <laughs> I need people to know like, no, 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 this argument going on at the high school you don't go to is important for the high school you do go to. So we are doing the podcast today that Jane, Jane's whole life has been leading up to. We are looking at the Catholic conservative crack up um, on one level with this fight between Sarah Bamari and David French, which is a, a larger fight about whether or not uh, Catholic conservatives should be um, committed to liberal democracy in this country or should move towards an illiberal um posture. Um, and then how that relates to the broader fight in conservatism about whether or not it should be populist and who it's really for. And then how all this relates to Kyle Kashuv. So so we've got a lot to cover. But Jane, why why are why why are Amari and French fighting? What what is happening here? So I, I'll I'll start out by kind of explaining the basics of this argument. It's a fascinating argument because underlying all of this is a basic question. What is conservatism? And moreover, what is the point of conservatism? And so David French is a conservative columnist for National Review. Um, I've spoken with him multiple times. Uh, He opposed Donald Trump's nomination in 2016, but he's very conservative. He formerly um, was an attorney for the uh, Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a right-leaning legal group. Um, And he's a very culturally, socially, and economically conservative person. But Sora Bamari, who's now the um, op-ed editor at the New York Post, um, he wrote a piece called Against David Frenchism for the um, conservative Catholic journal First Things, which has kind of been the journal that's been covering a lot of this argument over what conservatism should be and how conservatism can best fight liberals and liberalism in a sense. And so the argument is basically— that a couple of months ago, First Things published this open letter signed by a bunch of prominent conservatives that was a, a kind of a broadside against the idea of fusionism. And fusionism is, you know, within conservatism since about the 1950s, um, William F. Buckley's establishment of the, of the National Review and a bunch of other things happening. There was kind of this argument that conservatism included a lot of different kinds of conservatives. There were libertarian conservatives, conservatarians of some sort, social conservatives, uh, kind of, you know, the religious right that you might be thinking of, paleoconservatives, your Pats Buchanan, for example. And all of them were kind of brought together originally to oppose communism, in a sense that, you know, we may disagree on things, but we oppose socialism and communism. And First Things argues in this letter that Donald Trump's election showed that, you know, fusionism was broken and it wasn't going to work because, you know, they argued that the Republican Party had been so focused on free markets and free minds 
and that they hadn't that they had were um I'm going to quote here um that they were holding investors and quote unquote job creators above workers and citizens. Can and, I can I add something in here? Yes. Because I think it's important to 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 back out on this one part of it, which is that the thing about fusionism, the thing about conservatism in general, is it contains at its core as a movement this insane level of contradiction, which right. is on the one hand, free market, free minds, right? The libertarian conservatives, the, the the way to think about what government should do is it should not be involved in your life. And then the Christian conservatives who want a much more activist social state. Um, you know, you shouldn't be able to just get divorced because you want to. The government has an interest in making sure you remain married. You shouldn't be able to get an abortion because the government has an interest in protecting the lives of the unborn. And so there's this um, th- this quite significant uh, tension at the heart of conservatism between people who want the state to enforce a particular moral order and people who want the state to back out. Um, And I have some thoughts about how that got held together and how this is actually um, a a lot of like smoke and mirrors. But nevertheless, like trying to create an intellectual argument for why those two things are together is sort of the core project of of fusionism. Right. And so what stems from this open letter is uh, Amari's piece against David Frenchism, which is essentially an argument that isn't really aimed at David French, the person. It's kind of aimed at the idea of David French. And it's basically about that David French is too nice and that, you know, politics is, quote, war and enmity and that we need people who are willing to fight the battle in the cultural sphere and win it. Now, Daryl, I had a lot of questions about what that, you know, I, I, you know, occasionally when I ask questions like, what is the culture over which we're warring? Who are the opponents? What's, what are the stakes here? You know, you get a lot of different answers. But Amari writes in the piece that um, essentially the fact that French is focused on individual liberty and autonomy, um, part of the stems from um, Amari was responding, he was inspired in part by seeing a Facebook ad for a children's drag queen reading hour at a public library in Sacramento, which he found highly objectionable. And French made the point basically that like it's Sacramento. If people want a children's drag queen reading hour at a public library in Sacramento, well, that's their right. You know, you don't have to go. What you know, how would the state, you know, if the state stepped in here, would a different state step in to stop, say, you know, a religious service or religious observance taking place in the library somewhere else? But Amari's point essentially is that French is too focused on the idea of autonomy and individualized liberty, which is something that um, first things and a couple of these other um, social conservatives have raised the point that our society is too autonomized. And you know, when you allow people to make individual decisions, sometimes those individual decisions will be things like being gay or going to a drag queen reading hour. And Amari writes that, you know, Donald Trump saw the weaknesses of Frenchian conservatism, which I think is dubious, but that, um, you know, he concludes that progressives understand that culture war means discrediting their opponents and weakening or destroying their institutions. Conservatives should approach the culture war with similar realism. To recognize that enmity is real is its own kind of moral duty. So there's so much weird stuff in Amari's argument here, but but I want to I want to make one contextual point, which is that behind Amari's argument is the idea that the Christian conservatives are losing, that that is what is motivating this, that that the drag queen story time is winning. And uh, sounds great, honestly. Um, uh, That is, I think, in fact, the future liberals want. But that Christian conservatives are losing, that they are being driven out of the culture, that their core views are are, are not just becoming um, unpopular, but are becoming almost verboten, that, you know, to to hold to a biblical view on, um, on sexuality, for instance, makes you into a bigot, that uh, to hold to a biblical view on abortion, no matter actually how ascendant that seems in, in, in parts of politics, there's at least a fear that what liberals want to do is make that a, a thing you really can't say. And certainly, right. you know, you see with the, the Kevin Williamson uh, thing at The Atlantic that if you go all the way on that and you say, you know, women should be punished and hung for being um, – for for 
killing babies, which is the, the way they would like to frame that debate, that, you know, you can't even get jobs at the biggest organizations. And the, the reason I, I want to bring up this kind of feeling of loss is that I think to, to understand what is behind some of this argument, like you, you do need to keep some of these underlying demographic trends in, in mind. So right. if you look at some of the, the data on, on religion, um, one way that we cut this data uh, suggests that in the last couple of years, for the first time, no religion became the most popular religious answer in America which would be amazing. Now, I'm not sure I really buy that because what that's doing is it's cutting apart evangelical Protestants and mainline Protestants, which I think is reasonable, but a lot of people don't do it. So you can look at this a different way. Robert Jones, um, who's the head of PRRI, Public Religion Research Institute, I think. Um, but he wrote a book a couple years ago called the, I think it was called The End of White Christian America. Um, and his argument in there is that you're seeing a huge demographic change where this white Protestant Christian culture that has been the dominant political culture in America is fading. And while it has not um, lost its primacy yet, in the next 20 or 30 years, it will because he he groups um, mainlines and, and evangelicals together. But whatever's going on here, however you want to cut the demographic data, the sense that a lot of folks have um, within this space is that they are losing. They are losing in numbers and they are losing in power. And so the, the underlying deal of liberal democracy, which is fundamentally a deal built around persuasion, is not working for them. And if they want to, um, if they want to win, they need to do something. And it's very. We should talk about what that thing is, but something that is not persuasion. So you can get the raw Dreher stuff of retreating into a Benedictine option and just saying like the culture has turned against us and we're not going to be part of it. The Amari thing of all-out war. Although again, I want to come back to what he even means by that because it's incredibly unclear to me. Or the Frenchian approach of trying to build stronger protections for religious liberty and also trying to persuade people um, in, a, in a more uh, small-d democratic way that, that, your, that your approach to politics and life is correct. But, but all this is taking place within a context where the dominance of that view, um, which for, for many years did go unquestioned, at least as a baseline in, in American life, if not on every single issue, um, now the, the feeling is that, that you're fighting a, like a, a losing rearguard action. And it's interesting, and I think that there have been a couple of people who've pointed this out, uh, most prominently the Atlantic's Adam Serwer, is that the conversation we're having about um, you know, Christians feeling a sense of loss is about white Christians. Um, largely, African-American Christians um, have been kind of left out of this narrative in a lot of ways. And there are a lot of reasons for that. I actually – I spoke with uh, Russ Duthat about that a little bit, and I spoke with David French about this, and um, you know, they, they – both noted that the experiences of black Christians have been so separate because um, there's a saying in kind of some Christian circles that the most segregated hour in America is on Sundays because African-American Christians in general do attend different churches. They experience Christianity and their faith in a different way and have so historically. A reminder that, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest uh, Protestant denomination in America, was founded because it's the Baptists did not permit uh, slaveholders to become missionaries. So this was a breakaway group founded essentially to help slaveholders still hold slaves while being Christian missionaries. And so it's it's fascinating also this idea of what, and I think we perhaps now is when we should get to this, is the idea of what victory would look like. And moreover, you know, I think that it's been interesting observing this debate in some ways as a non-white person, a Christian person, and also a gay person, where I'm 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 aware that in some senses when, you know, First Things is talking about um, the Obergefell decision that brought marriage equality to every state in America, they are in a sense talking about my marriage and seeing that as some sort of existential threat to Christian order. But also the idea that, and, and, you know, it comes at this even more base idea that there was kind of an assumption that if you put up, you know, if you have kind of this platform of ideas, that the ideas that you like would win, when that's not clearly not true here. And, you know, when I talked to Duthat about this, he was saying, you know, there's, as you mentioned, a decline in religious affiliation for Americans, but also a corresponding rise in how positively Americans, including conservative Americans, view LGBTQ people or the concept of premarital sex. And I think that, there's an idea that there, you know, what happens if in a liberal democracy, 
and when in which people can kind of pick and choose what ideas they want to hold to and what ideas they want to abandon. The ideas that are most important to you are the ones people are like, eh, I just don't care. You know, one before we actually get to victory, something that you bring up there that I think is really important is there is the thing we think of as conservatism or the conservative movement. And then there is also the project of committed religious conservatives, something that you, you might see in First Things or, or that I associate with somebody like Ross Douthat. And one of the trends in politics right now is an unbundling of these projects and a, a heightening of their contradictions. So, you know, to, to a point you were just making, I think that a way of framing conservatism that is true is that the movement has been an engine for turning the grievances of reactionary white voters into fuel for free market ideologues. And there's a lot of dressing around that. Um, but if you go back and you think about like what what where what is the origin story of conservatism in this country, it's Barry Goldwater's campaign. And what happens in Barry Goldwater's campaign? Well, Barry Goldwater decides that the most terrifying thing in the world is an authoritarian state. And as such, the Civil Rights Act is wrong. And, you know, as was said at the time by his critics, um, he cannot recognize the authoritarian political state in his midst. Um, but the payoff of that, which I don't think is accidental, is that he wins the South for the first time really ever for for a Republican politician. And he doesn't win the election, obviously, but but it is in that victory um, or actually, sorry, in that loss that the seeds of Reagan's victory and then the conservative movement as we think about it today are put into the ground or planted. And so one of the things that I think has to be in this conversation is the reason that um, this religious political movement is segregated is that it relies foundationally on white resentment. And these things have always kind of come together. So I just before I came in, I was um, you know, looking at David French's most recent piece on this. And French is a guy, he's been on my podcast. He's somebody I I I I respect and I like, um, which is exactly what Amar's problem is, actually. But nevertheless, he was writing this piece about Cal Kashu, which we'll come to later. And and but he said at some point that as institutions become less Christian, they become um, less forgiving, they they lose their sense of grace. And I look at um, American politics and I see a world where as our institutions are more soaked in Christian – in that Christian conservative coalition, they're a whole lot less forgiving. They're more those – those are the states that are more likely to have, say, the death penalty, the states that are more likely to kick people off of Medicaid and food stamps or be trying to kick them off of Medicaid and food stamps because um, they fail a drug test. And there is a, a sense in which you can talk about uh, Christianity all you want, but if what you've actually done is – use a kind of cultural version of Christianity to enter into a coalition with um, white voters who want to make sure that their tax dollars aren't going to, to people who don't look like them, then you're dealing with something very different. And I just – I mean it, like in so many things, people want to paper over this. But like this is, this is the fundamental bargain of conservatism. And one of the things that's happening with Trump is that he is unbundling it. He at least rhetorically in 2016, although not in the way he's actually governed, he came in and said, you know what? Um, the problem – conservatives don't dislike the social safety net. They just want it for themselves and that's what I'll give you. I'll build a wall around, our, around the benefits. Um, they don't dislike government. They just want to make sure the government is raising their status, not not the status of other people. And so kind of he rips apart this fusionism in, a, in an interesting way. Um, but there was no there, – there was never a constituency for either the, the free market ideologues or for that matter, there's not a very large constituency for the hardcore Catholic conservatives either. No. There's a big constituency for white resentment politics and like conservatism is endlessly an effort to transmute that into something more respectable. And I think that that's been, you know, I, I remember when I spoke with uh, Matthew Continetti, who is a writer, he's at the Washington Free Beacon. I spoke to him at your podcast. We kind of talked about the idea at its very base that conservatism as structured is a difficult thing to sell to people without something else. And so, it, you know, when you tie conservatism to, you know, I think that that's why there are so many different forms and sense of conservatism or this idea of what conservatism is supposed to be in action. Because there's definitely kind of the conservatism of Edmund Burke, the conservatism that was kind of laid out in a couple of different ways by different people um, from Russell Kirk and others, you know, of that kind of conservatism. But that kind of conservatism exists more of an as an intellectual exercise and a political 
a working politics. And so I think that it's interesting also that you bring up Goldwater because I, I wrote a piece about black conservatives and black conservatism and Goldwater's nomination, which uh, Major League Baseball great Jackie Robinson was protesting outside the Republican National Convention. And he nearly got into a fight with someone inside the Republican National Convention that year because he can, you know, he was a staunch Republican until Barry Goldwater, in a sense, pushed him and a, gr- a number of other African-Americans out of the Republican Party. But it's fascinating because all of these, you know, all of these tensions have existed within conservatism for a long time. You know, you see that um, with Pat Buchanan's 1992 Republican National Convention speech that is like this broadside against, um, you know, kind of the what they what he viewed as kind of the cultural pathogens of the time as in LGBT people. And you see that in even more recent arguments that, you know, that Republicans are too controlled by the Chamber of Commerce wing or the business wing of the Republican Party. And I'm doing air quotes, which doesn't really come across in podcasting, but just know I was air quoting. But this idea that you know, these conservatives are tethered together by kind of these thin strands of some base agreement and, you know, you definitely the legacy of white resentment, that's starting to fall apart in the wake of Trump. And especially because, you know, when you start, uh, even before this particular brouhaha began, uh, David French was under fire, oddly enough, from the American Family Association because he called out uh, Franklin Graham um, for basically talking about how fantastic Donald Trump is and how, you know, what a great president he's been for Christians while, you know, while Franklin Graham's the same person who during um, the Clinton impeachment scandal talked about how our leaders need to be good people, our leaders need to be moral people, which, you know, Franklin Graham seemed to think is less important now. And the tethers between conservatives and conservatisms, because there are multiple, are fraying in some sense. And, you know, you see that when you talk to conservatives who are, you know, like w- the government should be promoting the social, the public good. It should be in the government's interest that there are happy families. And, you know, when you see it when conservatives are talking about the opioid crisis or kind of other factors that are contributing to, you know, a downturn in Americans' life expectancy that's happening at the same time as America continues to be the wealthiest country in the world. And as someone who spent a lot of time reading a lot of kind of conservative dictums and thinking a lot about conservatism, you know, when you're having you know prominent conservatives or people thought of as being conservatives talking about how the government should change our tax policy to make it less necessary for both parents to work, the government should be you know when I spoke to Amari, I asked him you know he I, he makes the point about kind of an ideal order in his piece. And I asked him what he would think of as kind of an ideal order. And he said, as an example, working mothers wouldn't be expected to return to work a mere eight weeks after giving birth. Oh, I thought this was such bullshit. (laughs) I thought this was such, I mean, look, like he knew his audience and I also don't think working mothers should have to return to, to work eight weeks after giving birth. But this guy started his fight over drag queen story hour. Like, we're like, Let's not pretend. Do you know what I mean? Right. The Christian conservatives could find tomorrow, if they all wanted to rise up um, in coalition for paid family leave, they would find a lot of takers. And like, you know what? I bet you if I open up the New York Post op-ed section today, that is not what it's about. And I've been looking at a bunch of Amari's work and I'm not – I'm not saying that there is not an important strain within this world that wants to create a more pronatalist policy uh, equilibrium. Certainly there is. I'm not saying Amari is faking that. Um, Ross Douth that is in that space. Like there are a lot of people there that, you know, it all, it's always seemed that there should be some kind of deal to make there. But there isn't in the end a deal to make because that isn't what they really care about and or at least most of them. And so, you know, he was not going to say to you at Vox um, – you know, in my world, um, the Alabama abortion law is the law of the land. But that's what he means. And I feel like that's pretty clear. Like otherwise, otherwise there's no problem. Like if what he wants to do is peel off Christian conservatives into coalition to have a more pro-family leave policy, like you don't need to abandon liberal democracy for that. That's popular. That is incredibly popular. Like liberal democracy is going to work out great for you. It's when you want to do things that are incredibly unpopular. 
um, which is a lot of what he wants to do and a lot of what that world of folks wants to do, that you get into trouble. Um, and, and I feel like it's actually a good bridge to, to the, the core question I have about all of this. So I want to read you an Amari quote and a French quote, and I'd like you to try to try to help me understand what anybody is really talking about here. So Amari at the end of this piece writes, the only way is through. That is to say, to fight the culture war with the aim of defeating the enemy and enjoying the spoils in the form of a public square reordered to the common good and ultimately the highest good. Which is to say, like he says, there's no like none of this nice French stuff. Like we have to like fight, we have to destroy our enemies, we have to win, and then we have to have a world order around again, like not just this idea of the common good, but a, but a religious good. And then French, in his response, I think actually makes a right point. He writes, "What is Amari's proposed solution to the menace of drag queen book readings for children? Does reordering the common good mean using the power of the state to prohibit that form of freedom of association? And and this to me is a key point." And if the state assumes for itself the power to stop the meeting and perhaps fire the librarian who organized it, why does anyone think that the forces of Christian statism will continue to prevail? Like that is my question. In, in a world where you're basically accepting that you have lost the persuasive battle, where do you go? Why right. Why do you think – like isn't in that case like liberal – like the protections of, of liberalism and I don't mean liberalism in the, like the left side of the American political spectrum but, but rights-based um, orders. Aren't those the only protections you have? I have no I, – I keep looking. I even asked on Twitter. I didn't get really a response on this. Like what is, what is the theory here? What does Amari want to do? What is this like all-out war? Is it just like a losing war to show that you were on the right side? Like what is he, what is he proposing here? So – I also don't know. Um, but I think that there is a ongoing argument. Um, and it, it's it's actually interesting that um, there is a piece, um, a, a fundraising piece actually in First Things right now called A New Consensus. And, you know, First Things is arguing, uh, we are determined to host a serious conversation about how to renew the moral foundations of our society. That means having the courage to challenge the old establishment views, and it means accepting responsibility for the positions that we take. But you know, I, I'm obsessed with definitions, um, and I demand that people provide them for me, whether they want to or not. And so, you know, when we talk about like the moral foundations of our society, whose moral foundations? You know, I made the argument on Twitter uh, a couple of weeks ago that basically the conservative argument about marriage worked, and it worked so effectively that the people who were you know behind the fight for marriage equality basically took that on too. We were like, marriage matters a lot, which is why we should be allowed to do it. I was at the human rights campaign several years ago as a speechwriter. And I remember that there was a group of LGBT and queer people who you know, were part of a group called Against Marriage that saying that basically buying into the idea of marriage was basically you know, subsuming yourself to a patriarchal arrangement that should be rejected out of hand, not something that you should accede to. And that's why you know, when you see people fighting for marriage equality or fighting for trans inclusion in the military, it is essentially saying that like, you know, conservatives were right that these things matter, which is why we want to do it too. But it, it's interesting because the idea of where this would go or what the spoils are or what happens to what happens to me? Like where do I go? Like what what you know, in this idealized hypothetical society that's working towards the highest order and the ideal good, you know, what happens to those of us who can't or won't do that. And I know that, you know, it, it's, I think a lot of people have raised the point that, like, you know, uh, I believe Rich Lowry's response in National Review or something like, you know, there just aren't enough extremely religious Catholics left in America to really get this done. But as like an actual political project, but the idea of having these conversations in which first things and others, and this even gets into kind of the rise of right populism, this idea that um, a program of, and I'm quoting here again from first things, cultural deregulation in which even today, as tens of thousands die of drug overdoses, political leaders in many states champion the legalization of marijuana, which that's questionable. Um, as Me Too and other movements indicate, our society's sexual culture is profoundly dysfunctional. No public leader lifts a finger to limit pornography, which implies inherently that it would be better if pornography were banned or if marijuana would continue to be criminalized or, you know, that like it, there's an argument here that 
it feels as if that the people behind it are not willing to really come out with, you know, they're saying like, okay, these bad things are happening. And I think that that goes, you know, that goes to kind of J.D. Vance's writing that goes to a lot of people who are like, you know, we're at this position in which we are the most economically advanced country to perhaps have ever existed in human civilization. You know, the amount of wealth and kind of financial power that this country has is immense, but people are still killing themselves. And there's kind of a sense of overall despair. They're like, that's an issue. That's a problem here. But like, what what should change or what would be better? You know, would it be, would we be less despairing if LGBT people weren't allowed to get married? Would we be less despairing if marijuana continued to be criminalized and something that, you know, you could be sent to prison for? You know, that I feel like there's a sense of like, okay, like we got it. Here are these problems. And we understand that these are cultural and social problems. And I think that there've been a lot of con- Christian conservatives specifically who are saying, that, you know, this is happening as you know religion loses its centrality in american life but there's also the question of like well if religion regained its centrality in american life would american life be better and for which americans and how so let's take a break and then come back to this point support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the harris school of public policy With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. So I want to voice what I think is going to be an unpopular opinion and say I am pretty skeptical of the deaths of despair narrative, which I think has become incredibly politically useful to anyone who wants to pick it up. And I don't think that data is strong enough to know what to make of it. So the deaths of despair narrative is in the past couple of years, we have seen a downturn in life expectancy driven very substantially by um, suicide and by uh, drug uh, drug overdose, which are horrifying, horrifying news. And both of those, you know, have been termed deaths of despair. And in some cases, they certainly are. Suicide is certainly a death of despair. And drug overdose is much more complicated, I think. Um, uh, Particularly, this is an opioid-related crisis. And opioids are often not given out for despair. They're given out for pain. And then the way in which that turns into a drug overdose is complicated and it relates to people being cut off or it relates to people, um, you know, moving to the black market to get a fix that works for them after their tolerance goes up. I mean, there's a lot happening there. And so the the way in which everybody's in like pick that up and run with it to say, well, it shows we really need whatever, right? We really need a, a revived religious conservatism, a democratic socialism, um, a, a Trumpist na- national populism, whatever it might be. I'm very skeptical. It's become a – it's not even clear to me that the the primary thing here is despair. Um, I think that we would be seeing that in other kinds of polling and survey data. And it's not to say we don't see worrying things in other kinds of polling and survey data, but I'm not, I've not seen anything that overall suggests like America has toppled into a full-blown spiritual um, crisis where Nobody can find meaning in their lives anymore just in the past five years. So I just want to note that that's become this thing people pick up to. It's like a it's like a it's a perfectly applicable 
global emergency because you can use it for whatever you want because there actually isn't enough data to say what is going on well enough to know what the true solution would be. But I actually think that the it, like if you were being in a in a weedsy specific way, if you want to cut down on suicide and opioid addiction, there are pretty straightforward ways to do it. Um, and they a lot of them have to do with uh, better opioid policies, uh, number one. Um, and then and there's a lot you can do on suicide as well. Anyway, Jane, something that you've been making the point of, though, is that this is all coming in the context of a larger reevaluation of what conservatism is. And while Amari and them seem to me to want to draft off of Trump, to suggest that like that reevaluation should go in their direction, that doesn't really seem to me to be where it's going. It seems that there is a is an important kind of reformist force emergent um, in in conservatism, and Trump was part of it, but too lazy to fall through. Fox News and particularly Tucker Carlson seem to be part of it, but it's not very religious, is it? No, but it, it's kind of this argument for what some would call kind of if you could have religion without religion. That in some senses there, you know, we need there needs to be something. Uh, there needs to be family or the community that acts as kind of the bedrock of American society to bring people back together. And with the argument that people are not together. Um, and a lot of this is seems, you know, I, I've spoken with Carlson multiple times and he's told me, you know, he's a Luddite and doesn't really like technology. And there's a, there's a lot of that kind of concern about, you know, you know, if people aren't having conversations with each other, but they're only looking on Facebook or something like that, that like we're losing this commutarian ideal that perhaps we once had, you know, that itself is arguable. But there is a sense, you know, a growing sense that what government should be doing is to do things that encourage family formation or encourage in some vague senses kind of moral betterment. And, you know, then that leads to kind of the dismissive and the dismissal of kind of libertarians and libertarian influence on conservatism. This goes back to, say, uh, Donald Trump's tariffs. Libertarians are giving like tariffs is, are essentially a tax on the American people. Tariffs are bad. Trade wars are bad. And you know, you see conser some conservatives responding like, well, you know, if this is what we need to do to bring our country together or to fight for more national unity, i.e. for a national unity that slows down the speed of immigration, then that's what we have to do. Not everything is about markets. And I think it's interesting because it's not necessarily a religious argument, but it is a moral argument. And this is not this is not new in the history of uh, populism. You know, William Jennings, Bryan's famous cross of gold speech from 1896 essentially was making the argument like, you know, are, are you essentially worshiping a cross made out of gold? He was making an argument the gold standard. But this idea that the Republican Party, as Carlson, um, Tucker Carlson said in his show a couple of months ago, has just been subsumed by business interests and by basically marking the argument that like if the Dow is good and, you know, the stock markets are doing well and people on Wall Street are making a lot of money, then things must be going well. And it's interesting also because this is an argument basically made by liberals like pretty recently slash always. But, you know, this idea that right wing, you know, right populism is basically arguing in a sense that the government should be doing more to create both the kind of ideal families and the ideal family structures. And libertarians, um, you know, who have responded by saying, like, what is the ideal family? Why should the government be doing that? You know, if Hillary Clinton were in the White House, would you be making these same arguments about how the government needs to do more with relation to the family? They're being kind of excised in some senses from the conservative experience. And, you know, when you talk to conservative libertarians, um, I talked to Charles C.W. Cook, um, who I've spoken with before, he's at National Review, and he's basically saying, that, you know, I don't, un like, the goals of this seem unclear. And, but it's very clear that the libertarian influence on the conservative movement is something that there, that is beginning to be viewed by some conservatives as a real problem. To me, this goes back to the question of what what were the fundamental uh, political projects of conservatism? So one thing going on here is that when you are constructing a political ideology and movement as a counterforce to communism, associating 
its health and the health of the country with the health of American business, right? Really valorizing American business makes a, a certain kind of sense. Um, like that is your distinguishing line between you and communism. So one thing here that I think is happening is that we're we're in ways I think we don't always appreciate living through the aftermath of of post-communist politics. And, you know, part of that is that Bernie Sanders can rise up calling himself a socialist. You couldn't do that 15 years ago, 20 years ago, because communism and and, and that understanding of socialism was so foremost in people's minds. Um, but this is happening on, on the right, too, where some of what kept people in line on that stuff, right, if you're questioning business, you're maybe becoming a communist, uh, has just lost its force. So so I take some of that actually is about this, the same trends as what's happening on the left. But the other thing there, which I, I do want to keep coming back to, because I, I think it's important, is that the way the fundamental bargain of conservatism worked was businesses and rich people didn't want to pay taxes. And then um, white conservatives didn't want to pay taxes if they were going to go to social programs that help the non-white poor. And in both of those cases, what you have is uh, you have an agreement that lower taxes and less of a social safety net is better. But for one group, it's like a second best. What they would like is an ethno-nationalist social safety net. Um, and what the other group wants is low taxes and low regulation. And this is not a – in multi-party systems, you see this broken apart much quicker. It's very common across Europe to have these uh, to have these kind of socially traditionalist, nationalist, ethno-nationalist but pro-social safety net political parties. Here with two parties, you had this sort of weird coalition in the Republican Party of these groups. Um, that's being broken apart by Trump. Uh, and then Trump is just too lazy or doesn't believe it, depending on how you want to think about it, to follow through. And Tucker Carlson, who I think always has a good nose for um, where the audience is, uh, has been moving in that direction, right? And, and sort of trying to make himself into, into the, like the paragon of, of like he still believes in Trumpism, even if Donald Trump doesn't believe in it himself. But again, there, I think that you're just continuously finding different ways to try to ask, like, how can you how can you build a politics around white identity politics? Like, what does that politics look like? That politics isn't fundamentally Christian. That politics isn't fundamentally libertarian. That politics isn't fundamentally small government. Um, that politics is ethno-nationalist. Uh, Donald Trump is a very effective rhetorical messenger of it. Um, other people could become much more effective policy messengers of it, right? The whole idea of building a wall around the welfare state is really is a very clear way of doing that. But this is one of these places where I think because conservatives sort of refuse to say what they've been doing for, for a very long time, like it's very hard to even talk about the the movement in any consistent or coherent way. There just, there just isn't a... The tricky thing about conservatism right now is that nobody quite wants to admit this, least of all the conservatives, but it seems that Donald Trump came along and showed what the political power of the movement was really about. That isn't to say what its power in discussions of political ideas is about, right? You know, we've all read our we've all read our Nash. Um, it isn't to say like that's what George Will's new book is about. But it is to say that what Trump did um, amidst the National Review saying he wasn't a conservative and um, amidst, uh, you know, George Will deciding to leave the Republican Party and all the rest of it is he showed like this is how you appeal to the voters who actually dominate the Republican Party. And the thing that has never been built is the intellectual superstructure around what that really is. And so now, you know, you have some. Uh, political entrepreneurs like Carlson trying to do it, but 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 it'll take some work. Um, but I think people are not going to like what its face really is. And there's been so much effort for a long time and for good reason to keep that face from being the main face of it. Yeah. You know, I wrote a piece um, in the before Vox Times, actually for National Review, arguing that there is no such thing as Trumpism, that Trump acted as this tabula rasa upon which people could project whatever they wanted onto him, which is how you got the weird combination of people who thought he was a dove, but also people who wanted him to like bomb the shit out of everyone. But it is interesting how Trump showed how thin, you know, I've been talking about kind of the tethers between conservatism's but Trump showed in a sense that people who think of themselves as being conservative and people who vote for the Republican Party are not necessarily the same people. A couple of people on kind of the far-ish right have started calling Ronald Reagan St. Reagan to make fun of how much Republicans talk about Ronald Reagan. But kind of that that conservatism is no longer. That conservatism isn't what conservatism should be. And that's why you're getting people like 
Senator Josh Hawley, who is basically, you know, he's arguing against, quote, free market orthodoxy on trade, and he wants, you know, social media companies to be regulated, and essentially arguing that, like, holding big companies accountable who have amassed significant market power is a conservative cause. And you're seeing the Federalist uh, conservative website arguing, you know, Teddy Roosevelt showed us how to break up these companies. And I'm like, Teddy Roosevelt? That You're like, really? And so it's interesting how this has been, you know, when I talked um, to a couple of people with the Libertarian Party and, you know, you talk to libertarians about this, they're kind of like, you know, this is boggling to them in ter- just how quickly the rejection of libertarians and libertarian influence in conservatism, which goes back decades, you know, it goes back to Rothbard, it goes back to kind of the formative ideas of conservatism as as what people thought conservatism was. But then there's a sense of, you know, it turns out that those formative ideas weren't really that formative for voters who voted for Trump, who promised health care for everybody. You know, that the reason why conservatives had long opposed the concept of, you know, universal health care as being kind of the statist project that would, you know, drive government more into the lives of everyday people, it turns out that's not considered a bad thing by a lot of people who think of themselves as being Republicans. It turns out that conservatism and the Republican Party aren't necessarily the same thing. And I think that that's been a really fascinating trend to observe. And, you know, a lot of this obviously is about Trump. You know, I wrote about um, Justin Amash being condemned by uh, the House Freedom Caucus, which he helped to found, the point of which was focused on small government and constitutional conservatism. You know, Justin Amash came into Congress in the wave of the Tea Party and now, you know, the Tea Party really loves Trump and is way less concerned about debt and big government than they used to be for some strange reason. And it it's kind of, you know, if you are observing this from, you know, where, you know, even in the last like 10 years, it's really very strange. You know, when you talk to people who are like, you know, who consider themselves to be staunch constitutional conservatives, and now they're making essentially the argument of why the government should break up Twitter because reasons or because they think it's unfair, but essentially making the same arguments that liberals have made about breaking up the very same companies. Um, you know, that, it's it's very weird. So I want to take a break and I want to come back and talk about Kyle Kashuv because I don't think conservatives are making the same arguments liberals are making about breaking up these companies, but I think his case shows what arguments they're actually making. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So Kyle Kashuv is one of the students who was uh, at the um, Stoneman Douglas High School shooting. Um, so he's one of these Parkland students who's become famous in the aftermath of that as an as an activist on school safety. And unlike a lot of his uh, co-students, he is on the right. So he's become a big name in, in right-wing circles in the, in the way that some of the others have become a big name in, in left-wing circles. And he's put forward a more conservative approach to, to what you would do to respond to school shootings. And he's more pro-gun and, and, and so on. Um, but he got in uh, accepted to Harvard as some of his as as did David Hogg's right. I think yes, was the other one. David Hogg. Did. And you know, both really smart kids um, have you know I think both uh, done um, the super high GPAs. Apparently, had a five point six GPA, which in my day I think was literally impossible. So I'm curious about how GPAs work, but I recognize that is not the the point <laughs> of this weeds. Anyway, 
it gets leaked that he has made a bunch of he was like on private Google Docs and text messages, yeah. um, you know, using the N word and saying a bunch of pretty racist stuff and making some quasi anti-Semitic jokes, although he's actually Jewish. And this comes out. These are, I guess I would call it the quasi private um, communications or I'm yeah. sure he thought they were private communications. And Harvard ultimately revokes his acceptance. And this has become a, a huge flashpoint. Um, you know, his name was trending nationally, tens and tens and tens of thousands of retweets on everything. And it's one of these like perfect polarization flashbangs in that on its own, it just it could not matter less whether like any individual person gets into Harvard. And there are no rules about who gets into Harvard. There are so many people who are qualified or more than qualified that why this guy and not that that, that woman or that woman and not this guy. It just it makes it a very hard conversation to have because you're not talking about an actor or a state actor that offers clear rules on anything. So there's like a lot of people saying, well, what about forgiveness? But I don't know. The idea that Harvard doesn't forgive you for things you did as a high schooler is the entire point of the Harvard admissions process. <laughs> like they are judging you incredibly difficult, incredibly intensely on, on what you did as a high schooler. And on the other hand, the feeling of having things taken away because people are sort of weaponizing your your private past, no matter how sorry you are about it. And I, I think this stuff is complicated. Um, and the point I want to make here, though, is that the reason it's such a flashpoint on the right and the reason I think it relates to some of these broader broader um, questions of breaking up social media companies that, that, that you're bringing up and to our, our whole conversation is there is a feeling on the right that in the elite institutions, the elite institutions that are fundamentally private but now play these quasi-public roles, a Twitter, a Facebook, the sort of elite educational institutions, that as part of the changes that America is undergoing, they've become woke in their politics. And so in spaces of ambiguous decision-making, um, like who should be banned from Twitter or demonetized on YouTube uh, or um, uh, not you know, have their acceptance rescinded at Harvard, the way the decisions get made is the, the ways in which young white men are assholes are treated very harshly. Uh, and the ways in which um, in, in in ways that are showing a sort of like burgeoning discrimination, I think, is like literally the way it gets framed on the right uh, against young white men. And I think the I think the most simple way to put this is like there's a real feeling that Sarah Jiang could make jokes about hating white people and make it to The New York Times and not have her um, job there rescinded, um, despite the, the best efforts of the right on that matter. But Kyle Kashuv, you know, can't remain in Harvard despite, you know, having made, you know, if you believe him as jokes, these jokes when he was 16 and apologized and, and and the whole thing. And that just shows that the the deck is stacked now against a certain kind of person. And that's where, um, in my view, a lot of the right wing effort to to break up or, or or get these companies under control comes from. They're not concerned about competition in the space. What they're concerned about is discrimination uh, against them in the space. So um, I, I want to be really clear here because I, I spoke with uh, Kyle Kashuv yesterday. So I, it's it's interesting because I feel like um, when David French was discussing this just on Twitter with uh, Jamal Bowie, who's now at the New York Times Opinion Board, you know, sometimes when we're talking about the use of um, you know racist slurs, it comes across as if like, oh, you just said something kind of rude, or you said something like uncouth. What Kyle said was repeatedly using the word nigger and then referring to someone as a nigger jock and trying to understand why a white girl was dating a nigger jock. And I, I want to use that word because I think it, it's weird. It's very funny to see how the same people who are arguing that everyone has used that term only use the term N-word, which, you know, if everyone's using it, then we wouldn't need to use this kind of obfuscating term that we all know we need to use. And so it, it's interesting also that, you know, when I spoke to him, he was talking about, you know, he was in a friend group where you just said the most shocking things for the sake of shock value. Um, he didn't answer about kind of the text messages. But this, you know, this overarching idea that our pasts all contain not, I, I you know, and I want to be clear here that this is not an argument of like, you know, oh, you know, weren't didn't you do terrible things when you were 16 like i as any 16 year old i was also kind of a garbage can but i never called anyone a nigger I, you know because for many reasons namely being black and so i think that you know a lot of people made the response of just kind of like whom who gets to be forgiven 
what mm-hmm. forgiveness would look like. Um, because I think that was um, both Eric Erickson and David French made the point of like, this is, you know, in, in a post-Christian society, you know, there's no such thing as grace or forgiveness. When one, you know, would forgiveness mean that he gets into Harvard now anyway? You know, is that kind of, because, you know, Harvard is not the only university that has ever existed. I did not attend Harvard. Uh, my spouse did, and they are delightful, but I did not. But also, I'm also in this position. Yes. Uh, and Harvard would have never even looked at me. No. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is part of my thing. It's just like, it's hard to have this conversation about something, about an institution that not only does nobody have a right to go to, but they, like most people, like they never have, even have a dream of it. Right. And it, it's it's fascinating to see this happening at a time when, you know, there's been a lot of talk about like the elites or something like that. And I'm like, if you want to talk about the elites, the elites are the people who can who can get into and go to Harvard. And a lot of times that's not necessarily economic elites, but part of why one would go to Harvard in a sense is because one is already achieved at an elite level and thus can go to Harvard, an elite institution. But it, it's you know this sense that the kind of grace and forgiveness that Kyle, that some conservatives are arguing that Kyle should receive would not be given to, say, other people. Let's put it that way. I am enraged by this grace and forgiveness conversation. Right. and Enraged by it. Well, also, it's an understanding of what forgiveness means that I think is largely separated from um, how it's construed in Christian parlance. You know, um, at the crucifixion among uh, Jesus's last words um, uh, at Golgotha where, you know, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. But the idea of forgiving them would not just be like, okay, we're just all just going to let this go and move on. The idea would, into Harvard. Yeah, the idea is that you know, you allow this person to make amends. You allow this person to try and do something. You do not give them the thing that they were denied because they did the bad thing. And so, you know, there you saw um, a couple of people raising the point that Harvard has accepted uh, people who were convicted of crimes and then served their sentences. But, you know, again, the serving of their sentence is the really important part here. You know, it's not that, like, you killed someone and then you got into Harvard and then Harvard was like, well, that sounds great to me. Um, And so I think that this idea that what forgiveness means what forgiveness means in some of these cases seems to be just kind of obfuscation that forgiveness would mean that you know, oh like he did this thing he's very sorry so he can just go on with his life which for one thing is not necessarily what forgiveness means but also that is a state of grace that is not extended to many people and we we i think that there have been numerous people who brought up you know many examples of how some on the right and others have, you know, when talking about people who were victims of police brutality, you know, when those people are victimized, even very young people are victimized mm-hmm. by the state, they are not extended with the same state of grace as someone who made really racist comments like 18 months ago. Michael and, Brown was no angel, right? Right. And I think that something I want to I want to get at also is that I, you know, there was the argument, I think uh, Ben Shapiro made the argument in Daily Wire that, um, you know, he didn't espouse his gross views publicly um, and his behavior since then has not mimicked the content or attitude of the comments, which, you know, is true. But I also don't think that that's entirely elucidating because, you know, if I were to, you know, I, I think that putting myself in the position of Kyle's classmates you know, if someone, if I found out that someone had referred to me as a nigger in a Google document, I don't really care if it had been like widely publicized or if they'd been nice to me or if that, you know, that had been coming out in a different way, I would still be deeply wounded. And I think that, you know, there's also, there's a lot here. I mean, there's the fact that, um, you know, Kyle is 18. The comments were made when he was 16, which, you know, if Kyle were 25, this would be a little different. But this was, again, like 18 months ago. And the Google document was made for a study group for the AP test he was taking to get into Harvard. So I have a couple of thoughts here. I'll just say on 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 him particularly, I just think this is a like an impossible question to debate. 
because of it being about Harvard. I think the kernel of truth in the conservative backlash on this is that there are a lot of liberals and I think a lot of liberals, particularly online, who are not very forgiving, who, um, you know, whatever the rhetoric about it and, you know, you will get any of these things about, no, you need better apologies, that there is a – there is a um, – there's a trend in liberalism, I think, to be not forgiving about things people have said, beliefs they have held, to, to not be um, open to change out, outside of like very, very dramatic examples. And I, I do think that, that like this is just like a criticism I make of a lot of online discourse, but I, I think there's a tendency to judge people by their worst moments and then to like look for reasons why you don't have to um, – like change that judgment. I don't really think this is, again, like a reason somebody does or doesn't get into Harvard. I don't know Kashuv. I don't know if he has changed. Like I don't I, – I genuinely don't have a strong opinion on this kid or this – in this situation. But so I don't want to – I don't want to totally um, dismiss the idea that, that, you know, forgiveness is a good virtue both in human life and in politics. But that said – that kind of whataboutism goes the other way in this very powerful way. And the reason I was saying earlier that I am genuinely angry at this conversation is that – so like I cover social policy or at least have for most of my career. And it is the places most soaked in Christianity that are the least forgiving about the mistakes people have made in their lives and not about whether or not they get to go to fucking Harvard. Right. But about whether or not they get Medicaid whether or not they get food stamps, whether or not they get to stay on TANF, whether or not having not made um, the right decisions or also having been in a situation where there weren't good decisions to make means you like ever get a job again. Rikers Island is full of people yes. who have made mistakes and, and have not yet even begun to do the requisite time that would give them forgiveness. Right. And so don't tell me, don't point to this kid trying to go to Harvard, which, by the way, revoked the acceptances of 10 other kids, I think, last year for making anti-Semitic comments. And schools all over the country revoke acceptances if you get caught drinking, if you get caught doing drugs. I mean, there's all kinds of moral codes around colleges that that end up like getting people like kicked back out of them. But don't look at Kyle Kashuv and tell me what your political movement thinks about forgiveness. You tell me what your political movement has to say about someone who grew up in an unsafe neighborhood and joined a gang when they were 14 and got involved in drugs and like did their best to get out of it, but now doesn't have a job and doesn't have any um, ability to get a good job because nobody wants to hire them and has a kid and doesn't have the money to support the kid. What does your movement have to say about them? Like, what is your forgiveness for them? Like, what is your ability to give them a shot at a good life? Because, yeah, like forgiveness is a personal virtue. But what people are saying right here, here is it is a public virtue, too. If your view is that part of how you get judged on forgiveness is that, like, you get to go to Harvard because, you know, mistakes are, get made and, you know, we should be forgiving of that, then – my question is, like, what else do you get? Right. How about the dreamers who came over here? Are you going to forgive them for their parents bringing them here? How about the people who cross the border to get a better life and don't have papers but have been here working day in and day out? Are you forgiving of their crossing of the border? Do you want them to be able to stay here and continue living their lives and being with their children? Are you trying to deport them? So this does not hit everybody in this conversation. I want to say that, for instance, David French has done very good work specifically on a bunch of these issues. But I am – I find this really upsetting um, because I do think forgiveness is an important virtue. I do think it's a virtue, again, and I want to say this clearly, that like I think sometimes liberals are too – there is a tension between wanting to use instances of this kind of speech or action to reset the boundaries in the discourse, which I think is an important and reasonable political project, and being unforgiving to individual people or really trying to, to destroy them or, or judge them by their worst moment. I think those things are in tension and they are hard to keep a balance of. And I don't, I don't dismiss the idea that you know we've all been on the wrong side of it, but. Yeah. Ask yourself, if you were a kid who made a bunch of mistakes, which political coalition would you like to be in power today? The one really soaked in Christianity or not? And if it's the latter, and I think it is, 
then ask, like, why? Like, what does that say about how Christianity has operated in the public sphere? Because I don't want to attack Christians here as a group. There are many of them. They are <laughs> most of the country. And they exist in all spots on this range. And they do amazing work. And I mean, they're just – it's human, right? But I do want to say that as as this operates in the public sphere, as this operates in terms of political coalitions and public and quasi-public institutions, I think more of a – I think some of the ideas here deserve more of a reckoning than they're being given. Right. The idea that the left is you know, less willing to forgive, I think in some senses that has come as the left itself has changed. And you know, I think we're even seeing this in conversations about Joe Biden um, or just kind of the shifting nature of kind of the constituencies that make up the quote unquote left. Because I just, you know, and I and a lot of other non-white writers on this theme have like, you know, people have, someone has called me a nigger, but I have never used that term. That is not an experience I have of like having this history of making really, saying really racist things when I was 16. I was saying lots of stupid things when I was 16. I said corn was good when I was 16. And I hold to that. But I mean the K-O-R-N. Oh, I mean the band. Yeah, but but that that bullet video is awesome. It's really good. But like, I think that there's a sense of you know, the the idea of this kind of broader experience that a lot of conservatives keep calling up to, that, that this kind of idea that like, oh, everyone has said this, everyone has used these terms. And I don't mean just saying like shitty things. I don't mean saying like more broadly, just being a dick. I mean using actual racist slurs. And I think that that's something worth noting. But there's there's one more thing that I really think is important here. I spoke with Kyle yesterday, and something I want to note is that a lot of the push that came from, you know, to get his Harvard offer rescinded came from people on the far right. Um, And, you know, when I use terms like far right, I think it's, it's worth noting that, like, conservatism is largely untethered from that group. And so, you know, it's folks like Laura Loomer, um, perhaps best known for chaining herself to Twitter's offices in New York, Mike Cernovich, a former pickup artist and gross person who then became a white genocide truther and now a quote-unquote journalist. These were people who were pushing really hard for Harvard to rescind their offer, even setting up a change.org petition to get it done. And none of this has to do with their commitment to anti-racism. Far from it. This is all about a weird power struggle over who gets to be considered kind of a, you know, a conscientious conservative, who gets to be primary in this movement. And this idea that, oh, if, you know, Milo Yiannopoulos gets canceled and and Alex Jones gets canceled, well, then we should take one of our own to prove that, you know, this can happen to anyone, so you need to defend everyone. But the person to whom I spoke yesterday is an 18-year-old person who made who said really bananas racist stuff but also that has being used as kind of this cudgel by full-grown adults and they're being used in a way to try and get back at other people and you know I keep, I said at the top of this that this was like trying to explain something else something that's going on at somebody else's high school this really is high school level behavior and it involves an actual former high schooler and it's just it's i think it's important to note that this is a it's really gross and even think talking about this is gross because at the one hand i'm you know I understand why what happened with Kyle is important into kind of how we're talking about conservatism and conservative power dynamics. But at the same time, I can't imagine being a fully grown person and launching a change.org petition to try and get someone else's college offer rescinded. Yeah, I think we can. I think we can all agree on that. All right. I think that is the weeds for today. Uh, Jane Koston, thank you as always. Uh, Anytime. Thank you, of course, to our producer, Jeff Geld. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering here in San Francisco. The Weeds is a Vox Media podcast production. Um, We'll be back in a couple of days. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. 
Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.